Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. So Luke here is using some historical figures, he's using some names here, to pinpoint the time period. Remember, he's speaking to a Greek audience, and they are people that are very interested in philosophy and a prove-it-to-me type of attitude. So let's go through some of these people. Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus reigned from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. He was a historical figure. He was related to Julius Caesar, and his name prior to being Caesar Augustus was Gaius Octavius. Those of you who are history buffs will know that Gaius Octavius was famous for his defeat of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's forces at the Battle of Actium. And this, this elevated him to become a national hero. Caesar. Caesar was a family name that later became a military name. Excuse me. That later became a, uh, that's true, a military name or a uh, political name. Caesar, uh, even in some, in, in recent years, Caesar was taken in, and known for the word Kaiser the German Kaiser, and the Russian Tsar. It actually comes from the Caesar. And Emperor, Emperor was a Latin, started from a Latin name, Imperator. Uh, a victorious general in battle would be given the title Imperator. And the, uh, what they did was they took that and it became Emperor in the English. Uh, titles. This is just uh, what the world looks at as far as importance in life. These people had these titles to elevate them to a certain type of status. And we know, of course, Jesus Christ came of no reputation, and his work on, on this earth did far more than any of the Caesars or Herods or any of these people mentioned here. And what this does is, speaking about these uh, leaders, it sets the stage for, for what happens to the Christians later on. These people were elevated so high in their own mind, and they wanted the people to follow suit, that the titles that they received... Um, evolved into people worshipping the Caesars, worshipping the emperors, and the emperors demanded worship in return. Uh, we know that actually the word uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, it means reverend or holy or exalted one. So you see what the, how the stage is being set. And later on, what you see is that the Christians uh, are summarily slaughtered because they will not worship the emperors. Now, in the pagan culture that they lived in, uh, at the known world, the people would have no problem, the pagans would have no problem worshipping these emperors because they were pagans. They had, usually they were polytheists. The Greek gods, the Roman gods, there were, you know, many gods. So people had no problem just adding another god to their list. But the reason why the Christians did not worship them is because the Bible says that even at one point, 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. So they knew to, to let go all the old idols of the past and to worship Jesus as God. So when the emperors demanded worship from the Christians, they couldn't in good conscience do that. So they were executed, and they became a problem uh, to the Roman world because they would not go with the flow. They wouldn't fit in. And then the census. 
Census was a common practice. We still practice it today. In the United States, we have what's called the decennial census. It's every 10 years, uh, end, the year ending with a zero. The Romans had one every 14 years. Well, what does the census do? It follows population trends, and it's important for conscription into military service. Uh, with, with the interesting thing about that is people wonder about why Mary went down with Joseph to be registered. And we can talk about the Egyptian poll tax versus the Syrian poll tax. One required a woman to go with her husband and be registered. One didn't. We could talk about the reasons why Mary went, maybe because you know, she was obviously showing, and people might not have believed that it was of the Holy Spirit, and people might have you know, ridiculed her or talked about her. Who knows in that society? But honestly, probably she went just because she knew that she was a Jewess. She was a devout Jew, and she knew the Scripture. So she just knew that this was the right thing to do, and probably the Holy Spirit led her down there. And then this gentleman named Quirinius, uh, also named Cyrenius, he was two times the governor of Syria. Why does Luke even put this in here? Well, number one, history tells us that Quirinius had a large part in the census. And the second thing is the province or the region of Syria was annexed to the region of Judea. So they actually... Uh, they put them in the same uh, category. So there was things involved there. So, Joseph and Mary go down to Bethlehem to be registered. Now, there's another biblical prophecy that is fulfilled here, and it's actually Micah 5.2, if you want to turn to that. Micah 5.2. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. It says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. The interesting thing about Jesus is that, you know, you hear about all these modern day prophets, so to speak, all these prophets who came after Jesus, some in the 1800s, some in the 7th century. And, you know, what, what about these prophets? Well, Jesus, over 300 prophecies Jesus fulfilled, and all of the prophecies uh, to the Messiah, he's, he's filled. And these later, these Johnny-come-lately, so to speak, nobody prophesied unto them. They were self-proclaimed prophets. Now, you can fake some things in your life. He uh, could have faked some prophecies, but it's awfully hard to fake where you're going to be born, the family line that you're going to come from, the circumstances surrounding your birth. I mean, there was a lot of prophecies that... You know, you're a baby. You don't even think about being a charlatan until later on in life. You know what I'm saying? So how could he even consider fulfilling these? He couldn't have. This all happened through, through God. And one of the things that's interesting is there was two Bethlehems at the time. Bethlehem Ephrathah, which was in Judah, and there was another Bethlehem in the land of Zebulun. So the probabilities now are shrinking. Bethlehem was not a big city like Jerusalem. It was a small town. And, you know, if you ever took statistics in college, I, I remember taking statistics. I, I hated it. But some of it was interesting. And, you know, it's like, in other words, uh, your chances of winning the pick six is like one in 50 million. There's odds. It's almost like if there was 50 million coins scattered throughout the whole, you know, country of the United States, and one of the coins, they were all silver and one was gold, and you were blindfolded, and you just walked around and you just picked up the first coin. That was the probability that you have of winning the pick six. So don't bother playing it, okay? <laughs> but what happens in mathematical probabilities is as the, 
the probabilities get smaller and smaller. That one in, and that number becomes million, billion, trillion. It becomes a mathematical improbability, and that's just a fact. So they, somebody calculated the probabilities of Jesus fulfilling all these prophecies, and it, the numbers are astronomical, so it's an improbability. It can only have happened through God, through divine revelation. But Bethlehem Ephrathah, Bethlehem means the house of bread. And isn't it ironic that Jesus is the bread of life? And Ephrathah means fruitfulness. Out of the fruit of Jesus' death, we all have everlasting life. And he says that, Yet out of me you shall come forth to me the run who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. That word everlasting, the literal translation, is the days of eternity. So there's a picture of who Christ is. He came as a baby, right, to this earth, but his goings forth have been back from everlasting. So people, again, there's, there's different groups and cults that believe that Jesus was just a man. He was just a, a good prophet. Uh, but the truth is that Jesus' existence was far before his incarnation into this world. And we know from 1 Samuel 16.1, uh, David came from Bethlehem. His father is from, the, from Bethlehem. So when he went back to be registered, he had to go to the lineage of his fathers. So he had to go to Bethlehem. And interesting here is the Romans unwittingly fulfilled Bible prophecy. See, man wills. God allows man to will, but God is in control. The Romans ruled with an iron fist, literally. They ruled with an iron fist, and they were brutal if you did something that they didn't like. If you committed a crime, look at the crucifixion. They were brutal. They would hang people on the crosses throughout the highways so people could see, you don't mess with the Romans. But even though they ruled with an iron fist, God was in control. Through all their, their dealings and their forcing people to do things, God orchestrated his divine plan for the Messiah to be born. And then he talks about um, some of this stuff is cultural. Jesus was, as a baby, he was wrapped with swaddling cloths. Swaddling cloths was, uh, they would take strips of linen and they would wrap the baby up like a cocoon. Now you might think, well, gee, kind of make him claustrophobic. But remember, the baby comes from the womb where it's real tight anyway. So it's kind of a way, it was a cultural thing where the baby would be wrapped and wrapped and wrapped with his arms, you know, close to his torso. Number one, for warmth, and number two, for security. And they would even do, in this culture, they would take salts and rub it on the baby's body, on the baby's skin, and then wrap them with the cloths. Most likely the salt would be uh, for, for the purpose of disinfecting germs and also to uh, get onto the skin and re help the skin release natural emollients to get the glands in the skin going. So it was a neat little thing that they did there. And verse 7, we, we hear about the manger. Well, this is worth uh, going into also. A manger is actually a feeding trough for animals. It was usually made of wood or stone. It was a big trough, big, like kind of rectangular box that the animals would uh, feed through. They put their feet in there. And usually what would happen here is actually in the area of Bethlehem, they have pictures of caves or uh, rocks, big you know, sides of the mountain, where they would, they would hew out or hewn out these rooms and these troughs that the animal would feed in. Uh, a lot of times the animals were kept in caves, and they would have these boxes in the caves that they would feed out of. So it kind of sets the stage for what they were uh, going through when Jesus was born and where he was, uh, the, the meager existence that he had where he was born. And no room at the inn. The inn was a place of public lodging, 
And uh, most likely because of the flooding of all the people coming in for the census, there was no place for them to go. And because they, were, uh, they didn't have a lot of money, they couldn't, probably couldn't afford to, to buy a place at the inn. I know there's a lot of a nomenclature here, but it is worth going through. Uh, what, what do you think jo- Joseph was thinking? Well, first of all, he was visited by an angel. And the angel told him, don't worry about it. Uh, when Mary was pregnant, the angel explained everything to him. The second thing was uh, she had a miraculous pregnancy. I mean, Joseph and Mary must have been flying high. It doesn't matter what people think. Look what the Lord is doing in our life. This is exciting. And not only does she have a miraculous pregnancy, but she's going to give birth to the Messiah, which is what the Jewish people have been waiting for for thousands of years. What an exciting time. But now what's happening is things are starting to change a little bit. They're taking this trek, this 100-mile trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And it's, it had to be a rough, a rough time. If they had an animal, pro- probably Joseph let Mary go on the animal to, you know, to take a load off because she was carrying that baby full term. No decent place for him to shelter his wife. And his wife has to deliver, most likely, in a dirty, smelly, dark, um, not, not comfortable environment. You know, we, we put our mangers under the trees and it looks nice and there's the animals and the hay and everybody looks happy, but most likely it was a very, very difficult thing for them to go through. And if you really, really start to think about this, the Bible doesn't indicate that there was a doctor or a midwife there. Joseph and Mary had to do this all on their own to deliver that baby. And the last thing is, Joseph was a good man, the Bible tells us. I could see Joseph, what's he going to do? The baby's coming out. He probably used his own clothing to catch the baby, to clean the baby off. He probably used his own clothing to strip his clothing into cloths and swaddle that baby. Man, who, who else is around to do it? And I, this, is, this is my picture of what happened, you know, what was going on. And I'm sure Joseph, again, being a good man, he respectfully asked God, Lord, I don't get it. I mean, everything started out so great. This is terrible. I mean, this is... This is the Messiah, and this is, you know, my adopted son, and is this your plan, Lord? What's going to happen from here? You know, what what can we expect? I can't even provide for my family. Some of you today may be in that position. You may feel that God has called you to do something. You may feel that the Lord has moved you. His Spirit has moved you. He's confirmed things. And things seem really good in the beginning. And then you say to yourself, Lord, but I'm hitting all these roadblocks. What's going on? You know, I, I, I'm having trouble with the finances. I'm having trouble with this relationship that's just not working out. Uh, it, it could be a host of things. It seems like, Lord, everywhere I go, there's a roadblock. You know, the, the, the devil's on me no matter where I go. And it, it's just not like it used to be. But remember, God is in control. And what, it, there's a big difference, and I always say this, from our perspective and God's perspective. From his perspective, things didn't look good. But from our perspective... Remember, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, John chapter 6, was born in a feeding trough. The trough that was used to feed animals now, that bread of life, is used to feed our souls. The living water in that feeding trough, John chapter 7, Jesus is the living water. He who, who drinks of this water will never thirst again. It's the, Lord, the water to satisfy our souls for everlasting life. So from our perspective, this was a good thing, you know. But from their perspective, it might not have looked that way. And you could see things in your own life. I could see things in my own life where I'm like, you know what, Lord, I I did this. I took this step out. I'm trying to serve you. And what's going on here? We're so impatient, aren't we? But if we really look back on our lives, we can see that the Lord always worked all things out for good. 
right? Okay, we're going to go read 8 through 14. It says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. This portion um, mentions the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. Now it's worth going back to Isaiah 43, 11 through 12. He says, I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord, that I am God. Indeed, before the day was, I am he, and there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. I work, and who will reverse it? So Isaiah tells us, God speaking through Isaiah, that God, Almighty God, is the only Savior. He is the only Lord. He is the only God. Before him there was none, and afterwards there will be none. So now the title is transferred to Jesus. People have an issue or a problem with Jesus being God. It's a stumbling block to some people. But it's all over the scriptures. Either Jesus stole it from God, and he's a charlatan, or he is who he says he is. He also says, God says something very interesting. And there is no one who can deliver out of my hand. You know, Jesus made the same claim in John chapter 10, verse 28. He said that no one can snatch them out of my hand. Jesus makes the same claims that God makes. He takes the same titles that God takes. So what does that tell us? In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote that, he says, you only have three choices for Jesus. He's either a liar. He lied about who he was because only God could be. He's a lunatic. He, he pretty much thinks he is, he's got delusions of grandeur, doesn't really know it, that he's not, or he's the son of God. C.S. Lewis said that Jesus didn't leave us another option. He didn't leave us the option that Jesus was a great moral teacher. And that is so important for this season, where people have such a, a, a misguided view of who Jesus is. You know, Jesus is God. You either worship him as the son of God and the savior of mankind, or you reject him. And that choice is yours. Now the shepherds, the shepherds were the first to visit Jesus. In Matthew 2, we see that the wise men came later. It's very specific that the shepherds came and found that Jesus in the swaddling cloths. And in Matthew 2, it records the wise men who came some time later. But why the shepherds? In those days, shepherds were, they were dirty, they were loners, and they were ceremonial unclean because of the work that they did. They were looked down upon. It's funny, we, we think about prejudice today, like we're the only society that there's prejudice in. There was prejudice back then. These people, these men were looked down upon. They were outcasts in society. The, the, the closest term I could think of is hillbillies. You ever hear that term? It's like people, uh, it's a derogatory term for people who live out in the country. So these men were, you know, they kind of kept to themselves. You know, they weren't really accepted largely by society. But these guys, a little bit about shepherds, they had to be tough. They had to walk miles up and down hills. They had to fight off predators and thieves. And they also had to carry sheep at certain times. So this is what you could see from man's perspective. 
Well, what does God say about shepherds? Because actually shepherds are all over the scripture. Well, Psalm 23, it's, it's read a lot uh, at funerals. I am the good shepherd. You know, God is the divine shepherd. I want to read Psalm 78, 52 through 53. There's just two verses there. God says this in, through Psalms. He says, but he made his own people go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. And he led them on safely so that they did not fear, but to see overwhelm their enemies. So this is a picture of God as a shepherd. This is a picture of after uh, the deliverance of Egypt that God leads his people like sheep. You know, he, he, he shepherds them. And then Hebrews 13, 20 through 21, it says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Shepherds used again. And of course, John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So from God's perspective, these were men after God's own heart. The Bible likens David, Joshua, and the judges to shepherds, and of course, Jesus. And pastors in the New Testament are likened to shepherds. As a matter of fact, the Greek word poemenos is used interchangeably in the New Testament for pastors and shepherds. It's the same word. It's, it's, um, it's, it's translated based on context. These were men who had no reputation but a lot of character. These were men who devoted their lives for caring for the defenseless. They would guide the sheep, protect them. They would know their numbers. Jesus spoke about the parable of the 100 sheep. And when the, you know, the shepherd, when the one sheep goes away, doesn't that person leave the 99 to find that one straying sheep and bring them back? Now, imagine being a shepherd and you have 100 sheep. They all look the same to me. They're white and fuzzy. And they go, bah! You know, so how do you tell them apart? But after a while, the, the shepherd knows the sound of his sheep. He knows their little idiosyncrasies. He knows uh, everything about those sheep. And that's a picture of God to us. He knows us individually. He knows the hairs of our head that are numbered. And as they get older, more hairs come out, and that's why I push it forward. But, you know, he, he knows everything about us. So actually, I did my hair like a little bit of a modified Caesar today because I was going about Caesar Augustus. My wife thinks I'm weird, but... Uh, so, so these shepherds, sometimes they have to train the sheep and sometimes they have to afflict the sheep uh, for their own good. But these are men, again, with no reputation but a lot of character. The first people, the first people to view the Messiah were nobodies in society, right? I think about nobodies in society. I remember a few years back, maybe five or so years, there was a big police funeral at Calvary Chapel Old Bridge. And all the police officers who wanted to volunteer, we had state troopers, local police, came in in full uniform. They had the police cars, the motorcycles, everything. It's a big funeral. And there was a processional that went down Route 516. When we were all done, a few of us got together and we had uh, like lunch at Manhattan Bagel. We all come in in uniform. And there was a man who observed what was going on. And he started striking up a conversation with us. And he said, his comment was this. Well, it was pretty interesting. He, he liked the whole processional and, you know, the whole thing about it. But he said, was it anybody important? That was his question. And I said, well, we're all important in God's eyes. And that kind of ended the conversation. He didn't want to go there. <laughs> but <laughs> what makes a person important? Think about it. In your, in your mind, what, thinks it, what makes a person important? Is it appearance? Is it education level? Is it status in society? 
what makes a person important? Is it their uh, level of speech? You know, I mean, I have a college education. I have a four-year degree from Rutgers. Are any of you impressed? <laughs> you shouldn't be. I did this most of the time in college, you know? <laughs> so it's really, you know, it's what is, what's reputation? I even think about Christians can get so enamored with people at Hollywood because of the, you know, the camera and, the, and the, all the surgeries and the money and the, you know, the notoriety. And people are just impressed by that, even in Christianity. You see, you know, superstar pastors, you know, people are just so impressed. Hey, look at that guy. But would it make a difference if you came here and you closed your eyes and no matter who came up to the stage, no matter what they look like, as long as they were giving you the word of God, isn't that the most important thing? I got to tell you a funny story. I can be really awkward at times. Uh, <laughs> the last time Gia was here, I'm going to embarrass her. That's actually embarrassing me. She was up here playing, and I think she did four songs, and I thought... I thought, uh, oh, this must be the last song, though nobody was standing. But I don't want to be late to come up to the stage. So I, I get up there, and she's playing, and the song's just about over. Now, she has one more song. I don't realize it. So I come up, and I'm behind the thing here. Some of you may have remembered this. And I go like this. I go to her. She, you can't see me doing it. I'm going like this. And she's going. And I'm going. And she's going. And I'm thinking, now I'm stuck behind this thing. I might as well do a puppet show at this point because I, what do I do, walk back down? So I'm, I'm an awkward guy, I really am. But <laughs> this is just something totally new for me. But my heart's in the right place, guys. I just want you to hear the Word of God. You know, I just want you to hear the Word of God. That's what it's all about. So... We, we really have to ask ourselves, what, what does impress us? You know, are degrees impressive to God? All the things that, that impress us on the earth are going to mean nothing in the kingdom. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. The person with the least amount of education and the least amount of wealth speech, if that person has a heart for God and he's leading people to the Lord, I guarantee you we're going to see them at the right hand of the Father. Not us. Um, you know, I even think about if you follow the uh, church overseas, look what's happening in Africa and in Asia and in the Islamic countries. These Christians are losing their lives. Their churches are being burned. Their kids are being kidnapped for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you know what? I've got to say, the American church, by and large, is arrogant. Now, who do we think we are? When, when heaven comes, you're going to be sitting at the kingdom with Asians and Africans and you know, people from Iranian Christians. He's like, well, how could there be a church in Iran? It's not allowed. There's churches, there's underground churches in Iran, believe it or not. And these people are going to get the places of honor because they've risked their lives to give the gospel to people that are by and large going to hell. So, reputation, what's it all about? Verses 13 through 14. You, you imagine this sight. The, what, what draws the angels out of heaven? This is a situation where there's a baby born. And the angels are just drawn out of heaven, by and large. And there's a chorus of them praising God. It's an amazing sight. It must have been an amazing sight to the shepherds. And they say, number one, glory to God. That's first. That's a given. God always gets the glory. And peace and goodwill towards men. And from that emanates peace and goodwill towards men. That's the Messiah's role, what he was designed to do. But what is peace? Caesar Augustus instituted the Pax Romana. If you follow Roman history, there was uh, civil wars. There was all kinds of problems. And Caesar Augustus' victory in, at Actium was the one thing that really helped solidify the Roman Empire and to bring the nationalistic pride back. So the Pax Romana was instituted. 
Caesar Augustus had a lot of good ideas, and it was the Roman peace. Everybody was happy, so to speak. But the question is, you know, the Bible talks about peace on earth. Has there been peace on earth for the last 2,000 years? You know, is this true? Did this come true? It, it depends on what your definition of peace is. Peace, the fr peace is a fruit of the Spirit, and it's supernatural. I've said that a lot of times. Unfortunately, a lot of times, uh, Tony uh, DeBrito did a, a service on God peace. What's peace all about? What does peace really mean? Uh, when things are, we, we tend to think that peace, when everything's going on our way, our way, that that's when we have peace, but that's not necessarily true. Um, let's read, or if you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you ever hear that book? It's a, a detailed account of basically starting with Christ, the Christian martyrs, over the centuries, and even there's been additions to the book, addendums over the years of what, what's happening today in, uh, in the world. But did these people have peace? I mean, all they did was want to tell people about Jesus, and they were burned at the stake. Some of them were burned at the stake by the church at the time. But did they have peace? You would think no. But actually, if you read individual accounts of these people being martyred, being tied to a stake, the flames are rising, they're singing, they're praying, they're praising, and they're giving the gospel. How insane. They're going to burn, and it's a very painful death. And, and they're, they're giving the gospel to people. All the people who are spectating, they're telling people about Jesus Christ. That's peace. Peace in, the, peace in the midst of trials. So what form does your peace come in? There's no sense in having a temporal peace, a peace on earth, okay? A, a peace that you could see if there's no eternal peace, okay? Um, Jesus said in Matthew 16:26, What does a man profit if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? So, the peace, true peace, only comes through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us through the cross. In 15 through 20, it says this, So it was, when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard, as it was told them. <laughs> these unlearned men, and it's funny because the disciples were unlearned men, and the religious leaders marveled. Well, these are unlearned men. How do they know these things? How do they know these doctrinal things? And it's the same thing about these shepherds. These are unlearned men. These were guys in the hills and heard the bleeding of sheep all day long and talked to other shepherds. Um, but there's three good principles of ministry here from these shepherds. Diligence, dissemination, and doxology. The first one, diligence. The angels depart, and they, they come with haste to find out what's going on. They didn't waste any time. And that's a good pr principle of ministry for us. Diligence. We as Christians, when the Lord tells us to do something, do we dawdle? Okay, Lord, I'll get to it. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. When, when this happens, then I'll do it. Or do we, do we go with diligence like the shepherds did? Dissemination, verse 17. The shepherds made widely known the circumstances surrounding this. Do we do that? Do we hold on to our blessings because they're for us, they're mine? Or do we like to give them out to other people? Do we like to share the, share the joy with other people? Um, you see the, the uh, parable of the talents, where they were supposed to take those talents, and it's a picture of abilities and the gifts that God has given you, and use them for God's glory. They're supposed to be used towards other people, right? But the wicked servant took that talent 
wrapped it in a handkerchief, put it in the ground, and gave it back to his master when he came back. And he was called wicked and lazy. So do we disseminate? Do we, do we spread the love? Do we spread the joy? And the last one is doxology. It's doxology because I couldn't think of another word that started with D. You try to come up with these witty things, the three Ds, dot D. What do I come up with? But doxology is good. Uh, what they do is they praise and they glorify God. These were changed men. After what they had seen and heard, they praised God. They were blown away by this uh, revelation that they got. And I'm just going to go through verse 21 through 24. It says, When eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of our purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So there's four things that happen here. Circumcision, purification, presentation, and sacrifice. These things were all done under the law. They had to be done under the strict Jewish law. And we'll explain why. Circumcision we covered the last time. That was at the eighth day. The male child had to be circumcised under the law. It was a sign of the covenant. Purification, that's, in Levit- that's covered in Leviticus 12. Blood was an interesting thing. Uh, it, was, it would make you impure. It would make you unclean. And because of the pregnancy and all the blood flow, she had to go through a purification process. Um, blood was, is sacred because of the life of the flesh is in the blood, Leviticus 11. Even animal blood, before animal was, an animal was to be eaten, there was a certain way that the animal was humanely killed and the blood was drained out of that animal before people could partake in eating it. And of course, uh, God forbid his people to drink blood, Leviticus 17.11. Um, and Jesus' precious blood was shed on the cross for the remission of our sins. Presentation, that's Exodus 13. This is a picture of Exodus 13 is when the children of Israel are led out of Egypt, and God is shepherding them, right? He's, he's their shepherd. And what happens is, um, the, after the last plague, the firstborn of every Egyptian was, was taken. Uh, they were killed, but the children of Israel, because of the blood of the Passover lamb, the, you know, they, their child wasn't taken. But God, in a, in a different way, wanted those children. He wanted the children of Israel's firstborn. Every male child that opens the womb, whether it be man or beast, is presented to the Lord. It was a, a kind of figurative way of giving that child back to God. And, of course, not taking him uh, by death, but for, you know, um, sanctifying that child and presenting him to the Lord to give him back for his service. And then for sacrifice, again, Leviticus 12. Uh, what's very interesting in Leviticus 12 is you've you got to, you know, some people don't like to go back to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but there's a lot of good stuff in there. And it actually helps you to understand the New Testament when you understand the Old Testament. But with Leviticus 12, the sacrifice, if you read closely, was for the mother. It was for the sins of the mother, not the baby. Very interesting point, because we talked about Mary and the, the, uh, a lot of the myths that surrounded Mary. Well, in this particular instance, she has to make a sacrifice for her sins. Okay, and Leviticus 12 speaks about that. And the sacrifice was two young pigeons or turtle doves. You know, this is a picture of, again, uh, people try to twist the scriptures. The whole scene with Mary and Joseph and Jesus was a humble beginning. And Mary and Joseph were, were poor. It was a picture of poverty. 
the law said that you were supposed to present a, ma- or a lamb to be sacrificed for your sins. But if you couldn't afford it and you were poor, then God accepted two pigeons or turtle doves because of poverty. That was a lot cheaper to present. So uh, as much as people want to talk about that Jesus, you know, people say weird things. Jesus drove a Mercedes Benz and like a fine chariot and stuff. I don't, even, I don't see that in scripture. And everything I see in scripture shows two humble beginnings. So Jesus was born under the law. He was the only person in history to keep the law entirely. And his Messiahship was the fulfillment of the law. I'm going to go through one more scripture and then we're going to, we're going to wrap it up here. Uh, Galatians 3. I'm just going to skip around a little bit. Galatians 3, 23 through 26 says this. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And 4, 4 through 6 but when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his, his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So the law has its perf- uh, purpose, but its purpose is over. The law was a tutor to bring us to, to Christ. And why do we need the law? Because we were sinful, and the law showed us our sin. It was a mirror. When we looked into the law, we could realize, it's like looking in a mirror, and when you get up in the morning, I don't look so good. I need to do something with my hair, you know, brush my teeth, do something. And the law was the kind of the same thing. When you looked at the law, you saw it said, don't kill, don't steal, don't covet. And you, you see yourself, when you look at the law, you realize, wow, I got problems, because this is God's standard. But the law brought us, it was a tutor. And when we grew up, you know, it brought us to Jesus Christ. And now that we're in Jesus Christ, he was a fulfillment of the law. And he freed us from the bondage of sin because the bondage of sin brought us to the bondage of the law. And he, he freed us from the bondage of sin and the bondage of the law. And I'm just going to read Leviticus 17.11. Turn to Leviticus 17.11. It says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And it kind of gives you more of a picture of what the meaning of the blood is. Obviously, we know that the blood does give us life. You know, if you bleed too much and you get to a car accident, you, you'll die you know, without, without blood. So the life of the flesh is in the blood, and he has provided it for atonement for our souls upon the altar. And the Old Testament had a picture of all these animals being sacrificed because of our sin. You might think, well, that's cruel. Well, it... It, first of all, it was done humanely. Second of all, it's cruel and it's bad because we're bad, <laughs> because we're sinners. Uh, so, you know, there had to be justice for that. And it happened all throughout the ceremony of the priesthood. And then when Jesus came, Hebrews tells us that he shed his blood, okay, as a sacrificial lamb, once and for all. When the blood of Jesus was shed and we believe on him that he died for our sins, that's it. That's the eternal sacrifice that was made for our souls. Whereas the priests, every year, day in and day out, they would have to do these sacrifices. Jesus did it once for eternity. That's why the temple doesn't stand anymore. Uh, so, so all these things happen here. But you can see that you know, a few things happen here. Number one, we can talk about ancient history. We could talk about uh, the Romans. We could, I could 
you know, say all this stuff to you and show you that Egyptian history and ancient history and extra biblical history, you could talk about the works of Josephus, the works of Tacitus, all the Roman historians, coincides with the scripture. Josephus even said that when he was he wasn't a Christian, when he spoke about Jesus, he spoke about Jesus, and then he said whether it be proper he said there was a man named Jesus, whether it be proper to call him a man because he did great signs and wonders. Again, Josephus wasn't a Christian, but he's saying, I'm not even so sure I should call him a man because there's incredible things that this guy did. Okay? So all these people coincide, this history coincides with the Bible. It's all there. It's not like we believe this fairy tale here and everybody else in the world has a different history. It all coincides. But I can't prove you into the kingdom. I can't intellectualize you into the kingdom. And as the worship team comes up, there has to be a point in time in your heart where you, you say, well, it sounds right in my head, but it's got to go from here and make that short distance to your heart, to travel to your heart. You know, uh, I said a few weeks ago, people who wanted to receive the Lord, I said, if you feel right now that the Holy Spirit is calling you and your heart is racing and your palms are sweaty, it could be that God is trying to tell you that this is right, that you need to go receive the Lord. The Holy Spirit is calling you. But you know what? 98%, or I don't know what the, the number is, 98% of this auditorium, when I say your heart might be racing right now and you might feel the Lord telling you to go up, 98% of you is sitting there calm and relaxed because you've already received that. You've partaken of the salvation of Jesus Christ. And, and the interesting thing was uh, there's people who have received the Lord, and I talked to them recently, and they said, you know what, Joe, when you said that, I felt that. My heart was racing. And it's like God was telling me this is, this is the time. This is the time to receive the Lord. So, if there's anybody here today who doesn't know the Lord, and you want to receive Him as your Lord and personal Savior, you want to repent of your sins and be entered into the kingdom of heaven and adopted as sons, I want you to right now come up out of your seat and come to the front. We'll say a prayer. You repeat it after me. If you mean it with your heart, the Lord will accept that.